Welcome to Season 2 of Insurgency Unmasked. Join us as we explore the hidden stories and complexities of the Ukrainian conflict and listen in as we deconstruct the war in Ukraine step by step, expert by expert. Welcome to another episode of Insurgency Unmasked with the Modern Insurgent. Uh, today we're joined by Mike Godwin, also known as Mike Reports. Today we're going to be tracing the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So to kick off, Mike, how how did you get started with your Instagram account? It's something that I know a lot of our other writers passionately follow. How did it start? So <clears throat> the idea for running an Instagram or kind of a social media-based um, you know, news and, and open source intelligence, which has for some reason become such a touchy subject recently, but uh, we're just sort of like, current events uh, page originally came many, many moons ago, many years ago, uh, when I kind of had the idea from just seeing other people doing it. Um, uh, one of my close friends, I'm sure you know him, uh, Our Wars Today has been a very popular one of them. Uh, there's a ton of others. I don't just, we just don't have time to list all of them, but they do a really good job. And he was just one of many that inspired me. And uh, in fact, he and I actually do co-host a podcast now. We've, we've got a kind of grown into each other but uh, it just seemed like that was where you were really going to get actual news and it seems strange and, and it almost seems counterintuitive like why would you get your news from social media in fact 10 you know five to ten years ago if you had said that people have thought you were the dumbest man in the, or woman in the room the dumbest person in the room but it's slowly become arguably the more trustworthy source for an unbiased detailed factual uh representation of something that's going on as we're as you're reading it or, or at least re, you know within a few hours um you know i'm sure I'm, I'm reiterating what probably a lot of people think which is kind of lost a lot of trust in mainstream news and i'm not talking about just the big names in, in the u.s but a lot of ones in europe as well of course what am i even going to say about russian or chinese media like yeah, yeah it goes without saying but it just got to a point where like what is actually going on? Um, and so I found some of these accounts like Our Wars and then uh, and started following this. And, and, you know, I'm the kind of person, especially when it comes to conflict, uh, I like to get into the very minute details, the tactical details, um, you know, kind of slice, thinly slice a, a certain, you know, combat footage and really take it into what is, and then try to interpret it. What does this mean? Oh, they're, they're doing this, that, that could mean that they are short on supply or, or that, you know, whatever it is. Um, so anyway, fast forward to like, I guess a couple of years ago, I'd already been working as a journalist here uh, in Georgia, the, the country of Georgia. And um, I think I'd been doing pretty well. I genuinely enjoyed it. Uh, but the outlets I were writing for were, again, sort of the more mainstream. Um, a couple in the US, one in Europe, and then uh, more regularly here in Georgia. Uh, but they didn't really do that detail, that deep dive, that, uh, yeah, I guess that, that intelligence-based uh, research. They were kind of just more of the reporter, the man in the field reporting. And that's fine, but I really wanted to get into that. Um, and so I was like, all right, well, I'm just going to create an Instagram account. And so, yeah, that's kind of just, I mean, it sounds simple, but that's basically what I did. I kind of, I, I took a little bit of like a corporate-ish small business and kind of drew out a plan, a, you know, a loose mission statement of what I was going to try and do and focus on. Um, as some have stated, probably seeing my website or the, or the Instagram account, you know, I do have a general focus. I don't just go like, I don't generally report on South America. I don't report on North America. You know, there, I, I kind of focused on my Eastern Europe, of course, Georgia and the South Caucasus, Russia and all that NATO um, and try to just build that brand. And it's, it's been a slow grind. I don't, I don't put any money in it. So maybe that hurt me. <laughs> maybe that hurts me, but uh, but yeah, that's that's just sort of how everything came to fruition. Hmm. And I think the open source intelligence community is incredible, to be honest, like the level of detail that it goes into and just the community itself. It's touchy at the minute, but there are some very good people in it. But how would you kind of describe open source intelligence to someone that had no idea? So in, I guess in the layman's terms, I would just call it finding information in by just by digging on the internet. Um, and by digging, I mean, 
Sometimes it's as simple as going on Twitter. I mean, a lot, some would call that that's not true OSINT. Okay, fine. Uh, some might say you can find a lot of it on Telegram. And of course, you're going to find your people that say that's not true OSINT. Uh, and maybe you're right. Maybe that's just social media intelligence. But um, I would argue that there's layers to it. Everything from your social media uh, to actually digging and finding some of the there's some there's a group here in Georgia that actually does incredible work tracing uh, the movements of Russian troops, uh, individuals via their social and their family's social media and their extended like and they they almost get this complete web map of how of units and how they've moved and these individuals and it's shocking. I mean, they also do some things I'm not sure is quite all right, like posting their personal contact information but that's neither here nor there um but but the work they do is incredible by being able to find this you know sort of my flavor of it is getting into where this this information originates uh some of it's telegram some of it's instagram some of it's twitter or x now uh and some of it's actually digging on the contact which is like a russian facebook or okay rue which is an, another social media that's pretty much Russia-ish exclusive. Um, some of it's digging in some of these. My Russian isn't great, but Google Translate's a wonderful tool. Um, that's kind of how, that's the long version, I guess. But you know, it's just digging in the dark corners of the web internet to find information that is readily available. You just have to know how and where to look. Hmm. I've said it multiple times on this podcast. It's almost unbelievable to me how often i see people die <laughs> like it's it's very it's mad that it's that accessible nowadays like you can see everything from drone strikes to people running into trenches it's quite terrifying it has changed the way i, I you could almost call it the next generation in full uh you know, transparency in world events, you know, if you look prior to, I don't know, maybe the Vietnam War, when when field reporting, combat reporting was really, you know, really on the front lines. I mean, I guess you could say there was some in World War Two, but the advent of color, color television and video camera changed it all. She didn't really have as much, you certainly wouldn't be carrying a World War Two camera, and certainly nothing even close to a World War One camera in those conditions, it wouldn't function. So you just had basically, glossed over reporting um sanitized reporting you know what what, what we get through the sensors at the time um and then i think sort of into vietnam um certainly by the time you got to things like the falklands war uh the troubles um and when you start looking at some of the middle eastern conflicts of the 80s 90s and, and of course you know certainly by you hit the uh the 2003 iraq invasion you've got to a point where mainstream even mainstream news are getting on the front line and in, in almost in combat but even then you're not seeing as much graphic content as you would see now mm. either it would be scrubbed out because you just can't air that on for f you know community you know like the fcc or or various government regulations just can't show a guy's head getting smacked off um whether that's good or bad is purely up to the listener but uh but it is a form of censorship, whether you're just in that pure definition. But I think what we're starting to see now with, I think we saw it a little bit in the Nagorno-Karabakh War in 2020. Uh, and then some of the things in Libya uh, prior to that. But certainly on a massive scale with Ukraine, we've seen this, I think the next chapter in, in, in and I guess, full, yeah, full transparency of the front line where, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure you and I have seen hours unwillingly involuntarily of sadly people losing their lives you know and it, it's, it's it's a weird desensitization um because i'll put it this way somebody did the, somebody said this i think on instagram probably people like us in our generation grew up before youtube was a heavily censored and b um where you had like live leak and e-bombs world and i don't know if you can curse on the podcast but e effed yeah yeah e fucked um i think it was e fucked that like somebody you know there was faces of death back in the day all there was all this stuff that if you knew where to find it you were kind of like edgy teenagers edgy 12 year olds you could find you know guys getting their head cut off by by al or the pre-al jazeera al jazeera um you know you could find all that stuff but now it's like you really just got to go to Twitter and everybody's got Twitter or Facebook. So 
it's yeah i think and going back to what i said i think it's kind of like another evolution in media that's that's you know like i said whether it's good or bad is up to the interpreter you know the, the viewer but it certainly has changed and that it's all become far more accessible yeah so you the ukraine invasion let's let's throw back to 2014 nearly a decade now which is terrifying yeah um what happened in 2014 how did how did all of this start getting underway so it really goes back before even 2014 but without making this a five-hour podcast like some joe rogan podcast you know it just goes on for hours um the, the the short nutshell version of it is essentially russia had been waging an information war in certainly ukraine as a whole but definitely the the more I would say prior to their information campaign, a lot of Eastern Eastern Ukrainian, uh, you know, the Donbass citizens were more or less on the fence. Uh, sure, they might call themselves Ukrainian, but sort of like a Texas in the United States, somebody from Texas might see themselves as Texan first and a very close second Amer- American. You know, something, you know, maybe somebody from Scotland, certainly now with, with more of these of this movement to move away, somebody from Scotland might call themselves Scottish before they'll call themselves British. Hmm. You know, it, I think there was sort of this, I'm a, I'm a Donbass, I don't know what the, the demonym is, a Donbassian or something. You know. I'm a citizen of the of this of this kind of Novorossia region of Eastern Ukraine before I'm really a full Ukrainian. And the Kremlin, I you know, you can see a lot going back to OSINT, there's a lot of information now that has, that has come to light in years past, in years since that essentially the Kremlin waged a long, subtle, almost undetectable at the time, uh, war via the media, via reporting, sorry, via getting people to kind of see themselves as more, maybe not Russian in the political sense, but Russian in the in the, in the Slavic Rus, uh, in the ethnic sense, and less of the Kievan, you know, the, the, the uh, yeah, Kievan Rus, Ukrainian, trying to pull people away. And so I think after years and, and, and even getting a more intense camp, uh, information campaign in those fall, in months coming up to it and the up, coming up to the Maidan, I think what you started to see is you could actually get people mobilized, which is what happened eventually, is they groups like the FSB, the GRU, we now know Wagner was involved. Uh, I think there were some others like uh, Bastion, which is kind of a lesser known uh, military uh, PMC, uh, a couple of others that are more or less confirmed, unconfirmed, but kind of this handful of shadow troops um, begin coordinating these paramilitary units, arming them. I mean, it's not like a case of AKs just pops out of the ground. Like they were obviously getting this weapons equipment, uh, heavier weapons, so BMPs, eventually main battle tanks and artillery. Uh, into the hands of these separatists that, of course, were largely recruited uh, by the, by these Russian agents. And so eventually, that's where you start to see the clashes between Ukrainian troops that are, especially, especially in the early, early hours, early days of, the, of this, you know, insurgency, this sort of uprising, which, if you look at a lot of the reporting at the time, that's kind of what everybody just thought it was, was this uprising, resistance, rebel group, when it, in fact, it was a subversive uh, mission by the by the Kremlin, but and if you look at the some of the uh, reports or the, the the reporting from the Ukrainian side, that's kind of what a lot of the police, the military, any of the the security forces responding to this, kind of characterize it as, oh, we got to go put down an uprising, we got to go fight this armed gang group. Um, and it wasn't until later that we started to find, no, it's a much more organized force than that. Also, it's mostly Russian, and now we're actually, and then eventually we actually start to see regular Russian troops, uh, particularly artillery units, moving into the into the zone. That was certainly quite a development, and was going to be one of my next questions. Uh, at what point did it become Russians, Russian troops on the ground? So. <clears throat> That's a hard, I think it, for me, it's a little bit hard to pinpoint because it depends on who you want to believe. Um, Western sources, Ukrainian sources, obviously plenty of Russian sources have just never happened at all. Um, 
you Crimea was a little bit different. That was more or less, yes, those are Russian troops. Uh, that was a little bit more of a, a slightly more transparent um, move by the Kremlin. Of course, that if you look at the poll numbers of like a popularity numbers for Putin shot up, skyrocketed after Crimea came back. Uh, so that was a little bit easier. Yes, we have troops there. And yes, we're bringing that into the into the Russian Federation. Donbass was a little bit shadier. Um, it, it, I think Putin kind of thought that if he if he went too hard, if you if you went too heavy with that, you might start to see a Western reaction. But if you could mire it in mud and then mystery, you might be able to just have the big question mark. Um, when we started to see that, yes, this is these are uh, Russian troops. I would say towards the first winter, which the winter of uh, 2014, 2015, when more information essentially pointed swords towards what I mentioned earlier, there's no way an, a local armed resistance group has this much logistics and baggage train, this kind of ammunition support material. I mean, everything down to, I mean, all the early pictures that were coming out of there was like, these guys are really well equipped. I mean, they've got, some of them have body armor, modern helmets, like modern for the time, you know, plentiful, uh, you know, magazines of shells, BMPs of relatively new manufacture. Um, you know, you don't get that via, from Alibaba. Um, so I think I, I would say towards the end of 2015 and definitely by 2016, it was all but confirmed. These are Russian elements. We just didn't know exactly. We couldn't say it was this unit of the FSB or is this unit, this, this, it was Wagner, which Wagner kind of wasn't even on the radar that much at that point. Uh, but now we know that. So I would, I, I guess to, it doesn't pinpoint, but I would say somewhere between the end, the, the winter of 2014 and then and 2016, the spring. And why was Russia able to, how do I phrase it? How was Russia able to take Crimea so easily back in 2014? So a lot of it, I think, is sort of this, nobody thought you could just walk into a country and do that. Nobody thought, it's kind of like, nobody thought you could do it until somebody does it, right? Um, it, it's it's a little bit of a shock, Um there was also the, the famous term little green men, um, which you couldn't, even back in those days, no OSINT could really definitively say, yes, those are Russian troops. Um, it was kind of the first time we saw a regular standing army move in and do something, but without the accoutrement of a regular standing army. Um, it was a little bit difficult to pin down. The other thing was the Ukrainian military. Uh, we, a lot of people have commented on this and it's true. The Ukrainian military at that time in 2014 was leaps and bounds backwards of what it is, you know, basically prior to the 22, 2022 invasion. Uh, this is before any significant NATO and Western uh, training and aid packages. Um, so you still had, there, there had been some prior to that. Not, I don't want to say that there wasn't, but it was nowhere near what, it, what happened after 2014 uh, in the years. And certainly obviously not uh, anything close to what we have now. Um, so the, the Ukrainian military, as far as intelligence, communications, uh, the ISR, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, uh, I don't think they were as coordinated as they are now to be able to kind of the rally the troops uh, and get some sort of either defense or, or just a coordinated withdrawal. Uh, so I think while I will fault the Ukrainian military at that time for that, I think, I think there was also a fair amount of corruption where the Russians... They do this in a lot of post-Soviet countries, but they did a, quite frankly, a really good job with the Ukrainians where a lot of senior Ukrainian officers still harbored, like I said, on that fence, uh, whether or not they, they held allegiances truly to Kiev or if they were just, they saw, they saw uh, Russia as still sort of a brother nation. Um, they were Belarusified, if you will. And so I think, I think there was a little bit of breakdown in that where you could get away with that where now a Ukrainian commander would immediately order his troops into a full mobilized state and put up resistance. Uh, so I think it was a combination of different factors combined with just good old fashioned surprise. Yeah. And the separatist movements is something I want to touch on a little bit from kind of the beginnings of the civil war in the Donbass. How have they developed up until the Russian invasion? What what were they up to in the civil war? 
up to the the recent the most recent Russian invasion. Mm. Yeah. So prior to that, you essentially saw the what would you call the formalization of military units, um, kind of uniforming them, regimenting them. Uh, they went from essentially just a, a if you you can kind of just do a cursory Google search of a list of all the different volunteer battalions, half of them don't exist anymore. They were either disbanded because they got shot up. Their commanders were overthrown because they were getting a little bit too ambitious. Um, or they were usually kind of kind of melded together with other units to form, you know, the, the first DPR army or what or the first Luhansk uh, militia, people's militia, I think is what they, they translates as. But uh, I so what you saw is it went from this kind of, Russian soft-led, you know, band of guerrillas, which is something not dissimilar we see in, in the Western doctrine, like in the U.S., uh, most famously the U.S. Special Forces that they're, they go into places like Afghanistan and then work in, meld themselves with these, um, with these you know, more local units, foreign internal defense, right? Um, and so we saw them go from a, a kind of a, a local armed group led by Russian soft or GRU or whatever, to something that's a little bit more organized uh, as the as the lukewarm war uh, that consisted or con, uh, continued post 2016 2017 into well 2021 and 2022 DPR Lugansk, all of them started actually getting a little bit more organized under the Russian Ministry of Defense forming actual battalions um, you know these these kind of groups of loosely led units uh they got uniforms they got equipment they got uh, actually a lot of their leadership or the more trusted people were sent to russian military colleges um, to get actual formal training and so you started to see them start to look a little bit more like an organized force so when the 2022 invasion begins russia has a little bit more of a solid military ally if you will in the east um, an anchor, if you will, so that they can push more uh, towards Kiev and uh, what we saw them do, Sumy, uh, Kharkiv. Um, and so I think the progression was gradual, but it was definitely bringing them into the Russian military fold. They started to, to even towards the 2022 invasion, when you started to them, see them actually start to resemble something like the Russian BTG, the battalion tactical group. Uh, they didn't have the resources to emulate that exactly, but if you look at a lot of the, the, it's more outdated now, but the doctrine of a Russian battalion tactical group, it actually says in its doctrine that not only is the, the BTG kind of the main maneuver element, but it's, uh, this is my, my phraseology, but they are padded by local indigenous forces, which is to say the DPR, the LPR, um, now all the, 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 the loyalists and the, or the, uh, the pro-Russians in the Zaporizhia and Kherson areas, they're, they're meant to be brutally put bullet sponges for the actual Russian troops. Um, I wrote well, quite some time ago about, you know, what would an, a, another invasion of Georgia look like if, if this was to happen again? Just because I'm here, I wanted to dive into that. And essentially, that was, I would, that was my thing, is you would see Russian BTGs, Russian military units that are padded and protected, or, or at least the first waves would be South Ossetians, Abkhazians, uh, uh, what are they called? The uh, the uh, Cossacks, North North Caucasians, and Chechens. Um, you would start to see the the lesser troops, pat and that's what, essentially what we saw in Ukraine. Was uh, as soon as twenty two kicked off, the in the east it was the DPR and LPR. But that's also why they didn't gain as much steam uh, as you saw some of those lightning strikes in the north, uh, in the south as well. It's something I've thought about quite a lot as well, the invasion of Georgia. I've spent quite a decent amount of time there myself and wrote an article about it as well. And a terrifying thought, realistically. And yeah, it would be the indigenous local people on the front lines dying on both sides. So it's not it's not fun. Yeah, it's, I, I mean, it's, I mean, even now, I think uh, today's the eighth. So yesterday was the, the official, the fifteenth anniversary of the of the two thousand and eight war. So yeah. it's, and then, and then I don't mean to bring it up just because I'm here, but it is an important point. I've I've uh, I'm not the only one. There's far larger political figures that have said this that essentially the two thousand and eight war in Georgia was kind of the the prequel 
to the 2014 invasion of, of Ukraine and eventually the 2013. Uh, arguably, you could even say some of the post-Soviet conflicts in Georgia and Moldova um, were also kind of the pre-prequels, the, the, uh, you know, the, the origin story with the 2008 war just being the first actual let's go in full invasion. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a plan that's been in motion for a long time, realistically. Yeah. And I mean, the Kremlin has its, has its, its playbook. I mean, you can, if you dissect the 2008, 2014, 2022, I mean, there's, it's gotten to a point where it's like, it's the same rinse, wash, repeat, um, just with different, different flavors and different uh, styles. Mm. And there's a lot of comparisons between uh, Grozny and some of the attacks used. So it does go on forever, realistically. Yeah, there's been a lot of comparisons to the urban combat that we've seen in Ukraine now to to Grozny, uh, because it is. It's just on the Bakhmut. If you you take a picture of Bakhmut now and Grozny in in 1998, they're they're very hard to distinguish the two, uh, maybe other than camera quality. Fully. And that kind of leads me on to my next question. I I could have understood if Russia in this 2022 invasion would have just gone for the Donbass. I I, like you would have got away with it. I have no doubt about that. Why did they start bombing Kiev and Odessa? What, what, where did that tactic come from? So the bombing is something straight out of, uh, of what they've done in Syria. Um, is essentially bomb and demoralize the enemy. They kind of thought the Syrians and the Ukrainian or the Ukrainians would react very similar to the, Sy- the Syrians, which is give up all the give up all the loyalists to Kiev. You know, um, kind of just take, take just say take it, take it. We, we just don't want the city reduced. Um, a lot of people have said this as well, so I don't want to say it's like it's my personal revelation, but I think they genuinely thought that um, that Zelensky, the Ukrainian pre- president, would pull a Saddam Hussein uh, and essentially either try to flee to uh, to Poland or, or to the Czech Republic or something, flee west, or that he would just go into hiding and, and kind of operate from a deep bunker somewhere. Um, I think they thought the Ukrainian military, I genuinely think that a lot of the intelligence that was fed to higher command was just the intel equivalent of uh, of yes men, just kind of giving you what you want, uh, which is if you dissect a lot of the Russian military culture, there's a lot of that in there. Uh, there's a lot of that in there in a lot of military cultures to be fair, but I think it's endemic in the Russian military. Um, and I think that built this sort of false picture that they painted for themselves that uh, Kiev will fall, Zelensky's governments probably won't last more than a couple of weeks or a month. The Ukrainian military, I think what they thought is a majority would either surrender or, yeah, you know, change it to civilian clothes, kind of do what the Iraqis did in Mosul with ISIS, uh, change it to civilian clothes and disappear um, and then there would be probably about a third to a quarter of them that would be just hardcore dug in, like a dug in like a tick. And sure, the, the Russian military could deal with that. We'll take some casualties, we'll crush them, and there will be this huge parade, uh, and it'll be awesome. And I think I think they genuinely thought they could, at the very least, seize everything east of the Dnieper River, Kiev, and probably, you know, if you look at the map of of Ukraine, at least the eastern half. Um, if you look at a lot of leaked maps that kind of came out, there was a lot of things about how there could be a way to, for Ukraine to st- stay a, a, a country, but it would just be sort of this about the size of Hungary kind of in the West. Um, and, and the rest of it would just sort of be brought into the fold. Uh, and I think at most, they would see a small amount of arms flow into the country from the West, from NATO. And a lot of banging and yelling at the UN and, and, and from Brussels. I don't think, I thought they would get the same reaction they did in Georgia in 2008 and in Ukraine in 2014, which was a lot of con- condemnations, a lot of angry words, <clears throat> but very little in the way of, of real action. Of course, we see that all of that was wrong and we see what's happening now. Um, I don't think they anticipate that, anticipated that, certainly not the scale. So, mm. Yeah. It's good you touched on the international support 
has a response like this ever really been seen before? The only thing I can see that came close is almost what we saw uh, in the the kind of the war against ISIS uh, with the supplying the Iraqi military and the Peshmerga, the Kurdish fighting units. Um, I think we saw a little bit of that, probably not as much in the arms, but in the, in the general support in means of, you know, there was plenty of NATO countries, including uh, France, Germany, the US, UK, uh, that sent a lot of air assets, uh, indirect fires, um, so artillery. Uh, there were several assistance units, so things like, um, I don't want to put exact units on the board, but I want to say there was at least some special operations units. Uh, I think there were some other more regular units uh, that were in the area, if not directly fighting, certainly like right behind them. Uh, on, in Syria, that is. On, on the Iraq side, there was far more support. I think they got the air assets. We saw the Battle of Mosul um, with, with, I mean, certainly U.S. units engaging in combat with, with uh, uh, ISIS units, ISIS fighters. So that would be the only time I can see the international community coming together at that level in the modern, probably in the, in the near modern era, um, maybe the 21st century. Um, that would be about it, I would say, I, I think. And that's and I still don't think that comes just as close, um, just because the breadth of arms and, and munitions, I mean, the shipping of hundreds of main battle tanks, uh, that's, that's a pretty big move. So you touched on it earlier, um, how radically the Ukrainian military has changed from 2014 <laughs> to now. How advanced is the Ukrainian military right now? Right now, I've, I think it's actually taking a step back. Um, just prior to the invasion, I think the Ukrainian military was at what it's probably been, at least for now, it's zenith. Uh, it, it's kind of pinnacle. They, they had been training with, I mean, UK, Canada, US, uh, a ton of other NATO countries that have been doing uh, various operations, uh, training operations going there. I mean, months and months spent uh, building them up. Of course, arm shipments as well, um, but you know, again, not to the scale we've seen now. Um, so I think that was at their pinnacle. And then through the first probably six months of the war, first year maybe of the war, it wasn't until I think we started to see probably the collapse of Solidar and the push by Wagner that Ukraine started to stagnate, I think mostly because of casualties. Um, you know, speaking to people who have actually fought there that's one of the things is sure, even if the person doesn't die, they're still not on the battlefield anymore. And that's a person with months, if not more of experience. Um, that's a, you know, it's one thing to lose, a, you know, lose a piece of equipment, like your you know, tank got taken out or an artillery gun got uh, disabled. Um, that's fine. You can get more or you can, or you can capture more, which is what they've done. Um, but they, when you lose a lot of that experience and that knowledge, it, it affects the, it doesn't just affect a, a unit, it affects the entire maneuver unit's ability to continue its mission. Um, there's a huge morale hit with that as well. I don't, I don't think that's really been appreciated by a lot of, you know, media outlets, a lot of anal analysis, not some do, but I think that is what is starting to degrade the most or the starting to degrade the, the Ukrainian military's capabilities the most is just the sheer toll that it takes um that's also to say i think the russians have suffered the same thing they've lost a ton of higher command they've lost a lot of men a lot of uh, middle management middle leaders uh, that i think has severely crippled their ability to wage maneuver warfare in the way that we think of it as in the west which is why nobody's really gained you see a gain gain or lose a village here and there uh and not to take that away if you gain a height that means a lot but if you're looking at a strategic level. It's almost been Russia's tactic for the last 200 years, hasn't it? Just flood more people in than the other side can really deal with. It is. I mean, we saw the most famously in the Second World War where, you know, certainly more even contemporary accounts were like, this is absolute madness. You're just sending in unit after unit. Um, and there's a lot of truth. I think, but I think it's, it goes to a cultural level, a, a martial cultural level, where 
we value so much human life and, and you know, the fighting man um, that to be alive in the West, whereas in Russia, it's okay if you die, it's glorious and we'll praise you and we can kind of do that whole, that whole rigmarole. Um, there will always be another five men behind him. And that's sort of the, the honorable thing. Like you're supposed to go die. I don't want to trivialize Russian culture too much on that. Cause I know, I know there might be some people in the comments uh, not, uh, not happy with that one, but I think there's, I, but you would be hard pressed to say that that's totally not true. Uh, I think there's a very different view in warrior culture, warfare itself. And of course, just the, the generic culture overall. Um, you know, I think the, the most famous, what is it? The most famous quote, I think, I think it was Patton that said, you know, the job of the soldier is not to die for his country, but to make the other guy die for his. And I think there, there's something to say about that that goes deeper in the West. We kind of don't want you to die honorably and in the glorious hail of bullets. We kind of want you to keep you alive. Um, you know, if you, I, I think if you look at the per, you know, the dollar amount per soldier that goes towards living condition, I can tell you from being in the military and in the U.S., you live pretty, pretty nice compared to a lot of other militaries in the world. You have a nice house, a nice home or barracks, you know, you eat decently, actually pretty good food compared to what you might get in the Russian military or even here in the Georgian military. You, you live pretty well. You know, the dollar amount per soldier to, to keep them living happily and is pretty high compared to what they spend per soldier in the Russian military. Um, and so, the, so to, to, follow, to follow that, there's kind of an economic side to it. If a Russian soldier dies, we're out maybe a couple hundred, couple hundred dollars. If a U.S. soldier dies, we're out thousands, if not hundreds of thousands. Um, so there, I don't know, maybe there's a little bit of economics behind that as well. But The Modern Insurgent is completely independent. If you want to support our work and help boost independent journalism, please consider supporting us via Patreon at patreon.com slash moderninsurgent. Thank you very much. Uh, so next we'll touch on the kind of the motivations behind the invasion. Why, why do you think Russia bothered going this far? Oh boy, that's, there's a lot of speculation in that because I don't think we'll truly know if we'll ever know for at least a few years. Um, you know, who knows the mind of a madman? <laughs> uh, I think that's very hard, but my own speculation on that is a lot of people have likened it to, you know, wanting to reclaim the, the Soviet Union. I don't think that is an perfect, is a great comparison. I think it's the more close, the closer one is rebuilding the Russian empire. Um, of the Tsar. I think Vladimir Putin, I mean, if you look at a lot of his, his references, um, they they come from more imperialistic Russian Empire uh, the the era of the czars than it does from the the Soviet Union. Uh, some of his ideologies, which I'm, I don't profess to be an expert on the mind of Vladimir Putin, there are people who are far more uh, schooled in that or have studied him far more. Um, I've just done cursory research, watched a few documentaries that kind of dive into it, and, and you kind of amalgamate your opinions off that, but. I think he wants to restore some era of of empire, the old empire to to Russia. Um, to be fair, since the collapse of the Soviet Union, Russia has not had it easy um, at all, ever. I mean, sure, they've had ups and downs, but if you look at things like economics, Russia's never truly been on par with Europe or the West. They've always been kind of seen... It's kind of like always having that kid. If you remember back in school, that was more or less laughed at. And nobody took him seriously. Um, it's kind of like that where it, the the opportunity to see some some form of greatness, um, you know, if if presented, will be seized, um, whether that's economic or militarily uh, or geopolitically, just more broadly. Um, Russia Russia has long been considered sort of the gas station, the largest gas station of the world. They don't have much else other than that. There's not much else um, geopolitically that Russia has to, 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 to wield other than, you know, it's large natural gas oil reserves and it's military, which until I would say largely until the, the, this recent invasion 
was kind of seen as um, not only the, you know, people say the second best in the world, maybe the third or fourth, but definitely up there. Uh, certainly after the, a lot of the reforms since 2014, um, a lot of the new equipment, you saw things like the T-14 Armada, the new Ratnik infantry group systems, all these things that when they came out, it was like, wow, that, okay, now you're starting to look a lot like the U.S., the French, the British armies, like you're starting to look pretty, this might be dangerous. Um, all these advanced detection systems and everything uh, that we no longer see, uh, really. So I think there was this this idea that bringing in Ukraine, which there has there has long been an idea that Ukraine was was always supposed to be part of Russia. Uh, if you look at a lot of literature, not just from Putin, but a lot of his um, either his benefactors in the in, in his ideological benefactors, a lot of people, a lot of things. Um, kind of echo that that Ukraine was always supposed to be part of part of the Russian Federation part of the the Slavic Rus, Russo uh fold uh and I think the collapse of the Soviet Union and the kind of the the, the quick dispersal of these countries like Ukraine um like some of others um Belarus never managed to get away that's a good example of one that just they managed to keep their their claw on and I think you, I mean, if you look at even past Ukrainian presidents, which I don't profess to be an expert on Ukrainian, you know, presidential history, but if you look at them, a lot of them have teetered on that line between pro-Russian and, and pro, you know, separatist, if you want to call it that, or independent, whatever, away, you know, moving away from the Kremlin. Russia has long tried to keep somebody, whether it's through guile or subversive action, trying to keep somebody in that position that was more or less manipulatable manipulative or able to be manipulated by their hand um so that they didn't drift too far out of their sphere uh i'll liken it to georgia if i may because we see we see it now where the the current government the current ruling party and in, in georgian parliament routinely from not just domestic but international politicians are labeled as pro-russian and i think there's a lot of credibility to those statements they're not just blank blank mudslinging uh, because I believe that there's a lot of backroom deals and, you know, discussions being had to make sure that things don't get too chummy between Georgia and the West. Same thing as, that was tried with Ukraine. So I think in addition to his empirical or his, his imperial um, aspirations, I think there's also this sort of self-preservation, preserving the state, which they see Ukraine as. Um, and when you can no longer preserve that through diplomatic or economic means, uh, then you kind of lash out. Uh, but I think I, I think that's sort of a broad, very high level look at it. I, I, I hesitate to go too deep into that, like I said, because it's very, you know, getting into the mind of, 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 the, of the Kremlin and, and it's a dangerous place. And it gets even more confusing when you look at like the oligarch spread say georgia you've got ivanishvili ukraine you've got an endless amount of guys who made their money through russian pockets and on the back of their local people who are still in bed with russia oh absolutely you bring up ivanishvili the zina ivanishvili for those that don't know is essentially the richest man in uh the richest georgian um and the man bleeds money uh, it's 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 obscene um particularly given the the socioeconomic status of most georgians he, he's on another planet um but he he made he essentially made his money through the collapse of the soviet union and the, and the rapid instant privatization of of state industry um by scooping up all these cheap companies that you know were a dime a dozen and now are worth a lot because most of them if you look i think most of them were mining and, and uh heavy industry uh now he's gone into some other things like hospitality and stuff like that but made his made his riches in industry and you know i know ukrainian oligarchs are no, no different they, they kind of make a lot of money off this opportunistic seizing of pri newly private industries and it's very troublesome just to look at that and say how do you how do you unplug that from this from this country and it's not like it's not something you can just quit you know, you can't just mm. tell them to say, nope, you can't have that anymore. And it links incredibly well with the media and information warfare we've seen as well. How has that played 
a role in kind of the goings down. It's it's been huge. So especially on the Russian side. Sure. So from the from the information standpoint, it's I mean it's it's an it's a masterful work of of orchestral art uh, from the from the Russian side. They do it. You got to give credit where credit is due, and they do an, an amazing job at manipulating information in the public. Uh, they've been doing it for a hundred plus years, ever since the advent of printing press and, and information. Uh, the Kremlin has been manipulating, certainly since the uh, the rise of communism and the and the Soviet Union, where notoriously information was very tightly controlled, especially from outside and in, outside influences. So they they have a masterful playbook on how to do that, uh, and it's it's kind of a long game. And just like I was talking about with Donbass pre twenty fourteen, there was a, there was a long game of slowly getting people to see things differently to see their world differently to see themselves differently even um like i said they, they started to, to from being on a fence where yeah I'm, I'm ukrainian but i i speak russian i have russian family members i've got family in russia to how dare you kiev you know try to try to kill off a bunch of these russian you know russian or ethnically russian people which never happened but you know but it but they believed it like it was the like it was a word of god to a christian it was it was the God's honest truth to them. Um, and it's, it's, it's a long, slow drip. Uh, you know, th there's kind of the old saying where the, even the mightiest and largest canyons start with just a little dripping water. And there's, there's a lot of truth to that in the information warfare space. Um, and Russia knows that and they, they do it, they do it masterfully. Um, and it's just, it's a, it's that slow drip of constantly making you not only slowly believe what they're saying but question what another what maybe the opposition is saying um it's yeah like i i i do admire it because it is i mean objectively admire it because it is a a work of of, of uh, incredible you know trial and error okay. so and it's it's worked incredibly well on the on the left and the right wing in the west realistically like i've heard lots of questionable takes on the war from every perspective everyone seems to be sipping the teat of russian disinformation and it's worked yeah it's it's shocking to see how how reach how much reach it's got across across the world um like i said it, it's that slow drip of making you question what you already know hmm. um and eventually that little slow drip starts to create the river starts to create the canyon uh, in some people's minds it's it is it's it's kind of sad uh, that that it's allowed to to been run but it, therein lies sort of the the paradoxes do you allow it for freedom of speech and freedom of press or do you quash that because it's obviously just propaganda uh, and that's as much as we'd like to say that's an easy choice to make i think that's a very fine line hmm. i i also think it works so well because the Western governments have lied a lot in the past and there's, there's clear horrendous decisions and mistakes that have happened. So it, that's yeah, absolutely. People are already looking for something to, for something to go wrong, I guess. Exactly. And that kind of goes way back to the, our first kind of discussion about how I even got started in this business <laughs> was people losing faith in a lot of mainstream kind of down home, um, media outlets you know i don't mean to pick on them but they're just kind of the low-hanging fruit cnn a lot of people just stop paying attention stop liking them stop following what they're saying um because they were wrong on a, on a handful of occasions just flat wrong they brought they brought on people that we now have evidence lied on national television i mean that's not some hot take political hot take we have actual evidence of the of, the, of these things they said that were not true uh that's not everything they do they do credit where credit's due cnn does actually report news there is if you go to cnn.com there's actual things that are going on in the world there so don't don't take me this as, as me trying to bash them it's just they're the low-hanging fruit other outlets do it um some do it less than others reuters and ap i like to think are a little bit better but then there's ones like fox and cnn and um you know bbc that i think definitely have their their biases and it's it's sometimes it shows so i think when when that became more more 
well known, I think, is when people started to question it and go to other sources that, you know, things like RT or Ruptly, Redfish, where it's like, do you actually know where RT, do you even know what RT stands for? Like, Russian television, like, that's, like, come on. Like, I think there was a lot of people that didn't, uh, didn't know that. That's simple, you know. I know people that didn't know what RT or Ruckley, what Ruckley was. Ruckley is a, a branch of RT and it's it's absolutely state-owned by the Kremlin, partially, I think. Red, Redfish um, was one I didn't know about until it came up on Instagram. I, I was, I'd been following it for a couple of months and it came up specifically saying it's Russian state-sponsored journalism. And I, I didn't even know it was based in Russia. They There's somebody, somebody with much more time on their hands than I do had actually made a good infographic that kind of connected all these dots between like Redfish, Ruffley, uh, Tass. Uh, there's a there's a litany of others that kind of like distance themselves, but they're still very much connected. And sure, some of them pro- may have some editorial flexibility to publish what they want, but there's always that connection to, you know, the home base um, where they cannot stray too far from that from that uh that party line and so yeah it go it goes back to what we said like i think people lost faith in a lot of western media western politicians um i think that's what some people maybe started looking to somewhere else um sadly i think i think they went looking in the wrong place but you know where where is the right place and that kind of leads us to you know the the social media news era and here we are. <laughs> and here we are. Uh, so if you had to come up with kind of the three biggest battles of the invasion, a Bakhmut would be in there. What else would you throw up there? Yeah, Bakhmut for sure. Bakhmut's kind of the easy one. I think that, yeah. you know, that's been for, t- for 10 or 11 months. I mean, gracious, that I can't even imagine. Um I think for the, the first, I think the first one is the Battle of Kiev, uh, which kind of wasn't a battle, but a series of uh, battles that, that if, you know, there's people on YouTube that have done a far better job of chronicling exact movements. But I think that, God, I know there's going to be some, some pro-Russian or some, you know, edgy person in the middle that's going to question or, or be like, uh, what are you saying? That was absolutely a victory from the, for, the, for Ukraine. Um, there's no question about that because there's no Russian forces around Kiev now. That's a very simple black and white military theory answer. And it, I think it was one of the greatest upsets in modern military combat history in the 21st century. I think that will, and, and people still do, they, uh, the Modern Warfare Institute at West Point does a great uh, podcast um, or a episode where they kind of dissect it from a tactical standpoint and uh, I don't work for them. I just I just think they did a good job on it. So full transparency there. But um, but yeah, I, I think that will go down in military history as one of the most shocking upsets uh, that I think, you know, I was one of the guys in, in February 23rd, 2022, that said, A, there's not going to be an invasion. And B, if there is, Russia's going to sweep the floor with them. I was one of those people. And I was absolutely wrong. Uh, I, I, I'm kind of glad I was. But um it, it, I think Battle of Kiev. Um, I think the Battle of it's kind of a combination, but Sumy and uh, not Kherson, uh, Kharkiv, um, the northeastern part of the country. I think, especially Kharkiv, that Russia was never actually able to take. Uh, they surrounded it. Uh, they were cut off. And I think that's that'll also go down as a kind of an Alamo moment, um, where the defenders were able to outlast. Uh, outwit and defend against a new a far superior russian force until the russians just gave up and said we're, we're going home um so i think those two would be some of the the big ones and then i think the last one that i would include in that list is mariupol um that i mean everything from the battle itself to the resupply efforts that ukraine did that you know if you look at some of the absolutely harrowing things they did flying feet above the ground in, in these MI8 helicopters just to get people and guns and ammunition and food into the city. A lot of heli- several of the helicopters were downed um, or got, t- got hit something like 
but the fact that they were able to do it and get people like medics and wounded and, and press out of the city I'm I'm shocked that that doesn't I, eventually somebody will make a movie about it because it's just like how do you not uh, but it's incredible I think the battle of Mariupol while obviously it was a victory for the Russians I think it will it'll go down as one of those mm. like was it the, the steel plant was in Mariupol wasn't it yeah the, the Azov, Azov the stuff. Azov yeah yeah uh, yeah if there's not a movie made about that I'll be blown away I completely <laughs> agree with you to be honest yeah um, I think yeah that's that's I think that one will also go down as a a textbook example of how to utilize uh, the urban terrain effectively in defense, despite being basically little to no chance of survival, how you can basically make them pay for it. And I think between Bakhmut, uh, obviously the battles of, of and around Kiev, and then Mariupol, I think those battles were so taxing on the Russian and, and their, their, their forces that it may not be the biggest factor, but I think it's still to this day a contributing factor of why we have seen very little to no advance from the Russian side. Yeah. And what do you think the impact's been on Ukraine's political landscape? It's hard to say because every time I try to dig, there's they've done a very good job of keeping a lot of their internal politics very hush. Which is good from for them because you don't want a lot of the, this this kind of dirty laundry getting out when everybody needs to look united. Um, I think the political landscape has undoubtedly changed behind the curtain in that there's certainly I think everybody's kind of looking over each other's shoulder. Uh, how do you not in a situation like this? I just saw something. Uh, I don't remember what outlet it was from. So take it for what it's worth but i think there was somebody some lady who was close kind of in the a female uh who was inside sort of the i don't know if she was in the rada or, or just in Zelensky's circle of people uh that's been detained uh relative either today or yesterday um on suspicion of being a spy and i think i think that's that's that fear has permeated a lot of kiev um and i mean how do you not? I mean, Russia does have its tentacles in a lot of the east of its of its sphere of influence, uh, undoubtedly, and they've been there for a long time. It's hard to get those tentacles off. So, I would be shocked if there wasn't sort of a a double checking of of everybody's you know who, who are they are they are who you think they are. Uh, you know, we've seen a few a few minor shuffles and commands. Uh, people be getting moved around or fired. Um, hard to say why because of course they don't really comment on that uh, which to be fair it's wartime you probably don't want to do that but i would say that it's it's more tense than it has been before i think yeah i think everybody's sort of watching everybody's watching everybody else and it's a little bit tense i'm sure it's not very comfortable in those operations rooms um but yeah I can imagine it's never comfortable in an, in an operation room, but certainly there. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Fair. And then for our final question of today, do you see any potential pathways to resolution? Ooh, this one's going to be unpopular. So the way I see it, this is, again, kind of going out on my own assessment, my own, you know, I, I want it to stand on its own. Um, my only way I see this being resolved, the only way, uh, is I think through some sort of agreement between NATO, EU, the West, and Russia. Um, if you look at the rhetoric from Kiev, from Zelensky himself, he's pretty much buried himself in a hole where he really can't back down from that. Like He cannot make an agreement and politically survive, or maybe even realistically, re literally survive. Um, you know, he's constantly made promises. His staff have constantly made promises about going back to 1991 borders, retaking Crimea. Uh, if I'm just being brutally honest, I don't see that happening. Like I said, I didn't think the invasion would happen at all anyways, and I was wrong. Maybe I'll be wrong about this. I very well could be. I've been wrong before, and I'll be wrong again someday. But I think I just don't see that in the cards from a strategic, um, you know, battlefield standpoint. I just don't see that. Um, so I think what's going to happen, and, and there's no way, just to be clear, I, there's no way I see Russia retaking significant territory, certainly not any significant cities. Uh, Kherson, nope. Kharkiv, nope. Zaporizhia, nope. Certainly not Kiev again. 
Um, I just don't see them taking any strategically important cities or, or, or areas. Um, so what I think is going, going to have to happen at some point is for politics, for the show, the dog and pony show, the West is going to have to make it look like they're pressuring Zelensky into some sort of agreement, um, some kind of agreement. I don't know what that really looks like. I'll get to that in a minute, what I think it might look like. But um, essentially, they're going to have to push him against the wall and say, you have to sign this or we're done. And we're, we're going to pull the plug on the support and you're going to go underwater. Because um, that allows Zelensky to turn around and go to his people and say, I didn't want to sign this agreement. I didn't want to, I didn't want peace or I didn't want to do this, give up these, these territories. The West made me do it. And here we are, we kind of have to do this. And that's a lot easier uh, to politically su uh, survive. Um, and that way, both sides can essentially walk out. Russia can say they've won by liberating all these territories. Ukraine can say they've won by surviving and not being overrun. They're still a country. They still have a coastline. Um, you know, they still have a variably functioning economy uh, and an actual military that was, I think, bigger than it was pre-war. So they 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 can come. So like I said, anybody, everybody can go walk away from the table and say they won. That's kind of what everybody wants. That's what I think what's going to have to happen eventually. What that actual agreement looks like, sadly, from my opinion, it's going to look like a repeat of um, the Minsk agreement that essentially stopped the Donbass 2014 uh, invasion or war, whatever you want to call it, which is, uh, you know, some sort of DMZ or, or demarcated line, the line of control, or, you know, they can't call it a border, but they'll call it something else. Um Ukraine will continue to to promulgate its its whole. We'll, you know, these are occupied territories. Russia will continue its whole. These are, you know, now welcome back to the motherland sort of thing. The stupid images, all the bear cubs coming over to the mother bear. Um, that'll all this stuff will go all over the place on on social media. But ultimately, on the ground level, there will still be skirmishes. It'll look just like it did. 2022, 2021, uh, not 2022, 2020, 2019, 2018, where you sort of have these low-level engagements, uh, you know, everything from squad to platoon size engagements, artillery duels, sniping, um, and, it's, and, and the entire line of contact is an inhospitable wasteland that still can't be really populated, uh, just like it was in Donbass, where you had bombed-out cities that were the front line. Um, I think that's what's going to happen. I, and I, you know, it's sad to say that, that we just go back to what it was. However, there's one thing I want to note. Mo and a lot of people have said this, what does that actually give Ukraine? Because what Russia now is able to do is rebuild their military for part two, right? Um, the only way I think you, if I was Zelensky, that I would agree to something like this is some kind of military, uh, agreement or, or some sort of clause in the agreement that says we get a NATO base or we get a temporary rotating NATO garrison or we get some sort of agreement from from European countries that if this happens again you guys are actually going to come into the fight and you guys are going to put some skin in the game that's what I would do if I was Zelensky I would say okay you guys pressure me to sign this agreement mm -hmm. so it makes like so I politically survive in my own country but so that this never happens again and Russia doesn't just, you know, recharge and come again, we get a NATO base outside Kiev. Yeah. We get a permanent NATO garrison, at least one. That's what I would do. Uh, and I think the combination of all the, all this stuff I've, I've talked about, I think some form of that has to come to come to fruition for you know, all parties to be happy or most parties to be happy. Yeah. I, think i completely agree with you to be honest so it's a perfect end to the podcast it's been an honor to have you on mike it's a pleasure and an honor to be here thank you so much joe uh so if anyone wants to find you on social media what is your handle uh so it's just mike reports just one word um i think my instagram has like a couple of like little uh, what are underscores because somebody took mike reports and never used it <laughs> jack jerk but uh Pretty much if you look, if you just type in Mike Reports, one word in any social media, Instagram, uh, Facebook, but I don't really use it, um, Telegram, uh, Twitter, 
if you just type it in, there's a stylized white background with an M R. It's it's pretty obvious. You'll see it. That's me. Check it out. Um, I do a lot of work for some of my partners, like at Atlas News. So occasionally you'll see me sharing content from there. They're good people. They do. We have a lot of fun. Um, in fact, interestingly, the Modern Insurgent we had Antoine um, Antoine on Antoine Brimball, the founder. Uh, so little cross promotion you guys go check go check out him too as well he was he's a it was super fun we got into some weird weird topics but it was a lot of fun um but yeah just check me out there and i'm usually publishing something at some random time fantastic yeah anton said he had a great time coming on your podcast yeah we go around when we talk about serbia russia ukraine dragons at some point uh vampires yeah it got a little sideways, but it was a ton of fun. We love a bit of Balkan mythology. Yeah, yeah, it got a little weird, but we had a ton of fun. Yeah. <laughs> so I recommend everyone go check that out as well. Go find Mike's other work and the podcast with uh, Our Wars Today, because Our Wars Today is also a fantastic. I'm um, I'm a follower of the Telegram and the Instagram. Fantastic news source. So everyone go have a look at open source intelligence. OSINT is worth it. That's my recommendation for today. So thank you and goodbye. The Modern Insurgent is your impartial, independent and academic guide in deconstructing the world's conflicts and insurgencies through our unique documentaries, podcasts, reports and scholarly articles. Reporting on the underreported.